if I had to boil it down, I think there's like this organic product fit where there's a lot of demand for dollars. Welcome back to the Web3 Builders Show. I'm Will Evans to my left on the screen. I guess it's this way. Yeah, on that side. And then below us, if you're watching on YouTube, if you listen to audio, I guess you don't care about this. But if you're watching us on YouTube, we're joined today by Dymo. We've got DC and Nalan. Welcome both to the show. We're really excited for today's conversation about your new app built on top of Base. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Okay, so I guess let's start with a story, which is, uh, I guess, Nalan, I met you uh, in uh, DC. I don't think you were on the team. Yeah, no, you weren't on the team because the story is, uh, well, after East New York judging, uh, I was asking you, like, how do you three guys know each other? And you were like, oh, we all went to high school together. And I was like, where is that? And you said, in India. And I was like, really? Come on. Like, I don't don't quite believe that. Uh, And it. And my my suspicion was, I think, at least somewhat correct, right? Um, which is that y'all had met at like math camp, nerd nerd math camp in the summer or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my perspective of this meeting, by the way, I, I remember, I, I I think I'd slept like less than three hours in forty eight hours, so I was like really sleep deprived. And yeah, I, I remember running into you, <laughs> and then we, we were we were talking about the, like myself and my a couple of friends who were working on the project ethos uh, at the time um and yeah you asked us this and yeah yeah we, we all of us met in like indian informatics olympiad camp so that was like ioi training actually all of us went to ioi uh for for uh, representing india <laughs> so that that's how we met and then we sort of stayed in touch since then but yeah that's the tldr version we tell everyone yeah we know each other from high school <laughs> uh okay so i guess you put it in what I heard was we went to high school together. What you were saying is we met in high school. <laughs> okay, I got it now. Right on. Um, did y'all and y'all, I mean, this was in New York, so y'all just immigrated to the U.S. like over college and whatever? Or Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, all all three of us um, ended up like moving to different colleges in U.S. And um, actually now one of the, the, one of the three people Adriana is actually my roommate now, so uh, in SF. So we, we now move together here, but he's working on different things. <laughs> so if he like walks by while we're recording, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll bring him into the interview. <laughs> so y'all met at uh, Zero X Park, right? Is that? Oh, so DC and I, um, yeah, it's funny story. We met even before, or I, I guess as I was learning about Ethereum or even zk Snarks first, DC was helping run the ETH Uni program. Yeah, that was a good time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, this was this was ETH Uni. Um, So we used to run these events called Hack Lodge, where, uh, you know, we'd bring together a group of undergrads for like a week, like an extended hackathon. um, But with a little less time pressure, a little more space for like talks and things like that. And this was a sort of follow up to that, but Ethereum focused. And yeah, so then we we met there, and then we ended up like going to to Zuzulu together, right? Yeah, lots of adventures. Okay, so let's let's do some bio questions. Like DC, uh, tell us tell us who you are, um, where where you come from, how you got to this point. Oh man, asking the the deep existential questions. <laughs> so I am 
from all over the place. I'm originally from Vienna, Austria, and then I grew up in Seattle, in Utah, lived in California since college, really love it here. And I've been a professional engineer for a long time now, um, like over a decade, and interested in crypto for almost that long. And so I'm really like, in the past, I've been, you know, uh, a part of a number of different startups, uh, helped uh, build and then build and then sell one of them that was a really fun experience. And now I'm just really excited to be able to work on Ethereum full time. What was the startup? It's a company called Dynasty. And so we were doing uh, leasing. We were doing a, a uh, like an AI product for for real estate. We were doing a conversational agent that that uh, companies that run a lot of apartment buildings used with uh, with some some good success. Which part did you work on mostly? So I was the CTO there. So I was it was like from a blank repo to building out an engineering team. And so a, a lot of it, so there's there's sort of like two halves to it. There's a like part of it. I mean, it's quite funny. Like I was working on on AI stuff a couple of years ago, right? And now that's really fashionable. Um, but uh there, there was that side of it. And then a, a lot of the, the other side of it was like, how do you make, you know, like a clean infrastructure for getting human fallback operators for getting like a nice integration to like all of the different, you know, operators, real estate operators, buildings that we were working with. Um, yeah, we ended up working with some of the like bigger apartment operators in the US where like a, a lot of where it really was, was worked best was where you had, you know, companies that are running like tens of thousands of units and, and they have, you know, this tremendous scale where they have just like a deluge of like leasing applicants coming in each day. And the types of questions that those people ask are like highly repeatable. And, uh, so we had, a, you know, a good success automating that in a way that people would effectively never like realize they were talking to a bot because they were just getting like really like fast and correct service from like an SMS bot and then human fallback if they ask a hard enough question. So I assume you probably didn't roll your own machine learning, right? You probably had an API from somebody or were you? Um, so we used BERT. We did do our own training. I mean, we didn't do like every, we, we started with pre-trained models, um, but we had like a pretty effective classifier that that we fine-tuned off of that, if that makes sense. And this was before like the current, wave of GPT APIs. This was between 2017 and, and 2021. Um, so then, so then 2021 is when you, like you, I mean, you'd been doing the hack lodges before that, but that's when you got to, got to go full time on this stuff. <laughs> I worked in aerospace briefly then actually as helping a friend's company. Um, that was really fun too. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, then we've, we've been doing like, so we've been working on Dymo now since June. So this is a very new project. And how about you, Alan? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I um, I mean, I grew up in India and then I, I I guess I did a lot of like competitive programming and Olympiad math, that that kind of stuff. Um, sort of, I, I, I guess just met a lot of really interesting and like people just building cool stuff. <laughs> um, a lot of them were, you know, based in, based in US and um, I, I guess all over. Um, that's sort of how I ended up working at um, a startup uh, doing machine learning for them. Um, and, and then sort of from there, um, I, I, I ended up at ETH Uni, sort of the ZK space, um, 
worked with Zurich Spark, um, led their research division for a while, and then um, now I, I guess we're, we're doing Dymo. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I guess tell me about your experience with Xerox Park, and I guess I should describe that for maybe people that aren't familiar with it. I only knew about it this year, which maybe disqualifies me from being co-host on the Ethereum podcast, but I just found out about it. So yeah, it's going to be some people who don't know about it. Well, it is, you know, it is sort of somewhat under the radar. I mean, y'all are like, I guess, you know, I, like I would describe it as a group of nerds doing ZK stuff. Uh, you know, I don't think that's entirely unfair. Uh, um, how would y'all describe it? Would you have a different characterization? Yeah, Xerox Park is a very interesting entity. <laughs> um, my introduction was um, also through ZK, or I, I guess during the same 18 year I met DC, um, I ended up meeting some of the co-founders of Xerox Park, um, and mostly started doing like some months of ZK stuff, some amounts of like on-chain game stuff, which sort of Zurich Spark ended up becoming a lot of the center for with like um, autonomous worlds and like mud and sort of all of that side on the on-chain gaming and then ZK stuff with like a, a lot of my work or a, a lot of other research projects and ZooPass, which DC also ended up working on. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Tell us about ZooPass. Sure. I'll say a few things. Um, I mean, backing up a, a quarter step too, like, yeah, Xerox Park's an amazing organization. A lot of like really like capable researchers there doing really interesting things. Um, and uh, so one of the founders, uh, like Brian, Brian Gu, um, was also like uh, one of the people running Hacklodge. So I'm close friends with him from that and from, from other things. Um, but yeah, so ZooPass, that was a Xerox Park project that I ended up helping out with a bit. And it was a experimental passport for Zuzulu, which is a experimental pop-up city-state thing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what it what it did was it generated, you know, a cryptographic identity that facilitates making a zero-knowledge proof of membership. So you can prove to, you know, uh, adapt a website. Hey. Like I'm a Zuzulu visitor, I'm a Zuzulu resident, but I won't say which one. And then there were some some fun, you know, applications that came out of that, like this, you know, trust minimized anonymous voting, um, like an anonymous forum that people could post on that that ended up happening. And then people were also using it, uh, you know, with a QR code that you could show on your phone to badge into events at, at Zuzulu. Did, do you work on this at Zuzulu or did, had you worked on it previously to arriving <laughs> there? So this was a, uh, it was a very quick turnaround project, actually. This was like four weeks before the start of Zuzulu. People were like, hey, we need a way, we need an identity solution. <laughs> and so uh, Zero X Park ended up like taking that on and then I ended up helping out with it. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, a, a couple of us working you know, uh, really hard on it over basically like an extended hackathon right before Zuzulu. And did you, it was ready on day one? Um, for some value of ready, yeah. I mean, it worked. <laughs> there was definitely some things to like improve about it and uh, make smoother. Um, I think that was honestly true of the event itself as well. So, so it kind of blended in there. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was gratifying seeing people make stuff on top of it afterwards over the course of the event. That was that was really fun. Let's move over and talk about Dymo itself. 
because we have a lot of questions and Zuzulu is fun. I didn't go, but I heard it was fun. I'm not cool enough to go. Didn't get invited. It's okay. But we're here for other things. Let's talk about them. Okay, so on your website, you describe Dymo as your dollars worldwide, pay people or receive USDC anywhere. Essentially, it's Venmo on top of Base. Base, of course, being the new L2 that is uh, from Coinbase, the exchange. They worked really hard to get an optimistic rollup set up. uh, And that launched over the summer. We've seen friend tech pop up on them and other applications and you guys are building on top of them. Give us like the 30 second elevator pitch on the project itself. And then we're going to start going through some like the technical decisions and then also like the TAM for this product as well. Yeah, I think there's like two sorts of angles to it. One is like the the sort of user facing angle, which is like, um, you know, people want to use stable coins, um, people want to hold US dollars um, and people want to, you know, use, uh, be able to transact globally, right? Like, we go to so many like crypto events and uh, whatnot. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're using like Venmo or Revolut or all of these apps that you know, don't even work if, if I'm I'm living in the US and my friends living in Europe or something, right? Um, so, so even that as like a very particular small audience, you know, like this is a problem that needs solving, right? Like, um, and, and all of us work on blockchains. <laughs> so this seems like a very obvious problem to solve, right? Um, and sort of even beyond that, you know, like the user-facing angle that's like even more interesting is like, you know, with stable coins um, getting a lot more adoption in like um, a, a lot of these countries where like inflation is really high, like, you know, um, Argentina, Turkey, um, those kinds of countries, you know, there is like a lot of demand for self-custody um, dollars. Um, and this is sort of the exact problem Dymo is solving um, from a user-facing perspective. Or uh, I, I guess why we are the ones doing it right now kind of angle, um, which is like more about like why we've chose Ethereum, you know, why we're making these choices with like, you know, doing our B256 verifier for secure enclaves and um, all, all of this kind of stuff, which is sort of more uh, in the weeds. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, DC? Do you think that's a good Yeah, summary? no, that was a great summary. I mean, I think uh, if I had to boil it down, I think there's like this organic product fit where there's a lot of demand for dollars. It's easy to like take it for granted living in the US, but in many other countries, this is a real problem. Right now, a fair amount of that demand is being met by like, you know, USDT on Tron and USDT on Binance. We can talk a bit more about those. Um, On the one hand, it's really exciting because it's like organic usage of, you know, crypto for like non-speculative real world use. Um, I think it's also scary because I think, you know, some of those parts are not the most stable thing or like trustworthy thing to build on. And so we really want to make something that like is open and permissionless and like transparent. And I think, yeah, the, the, the why now thing, we can talk a bit about that. Like I, there's a, but the long and short of it is that I think that like, there's a lot of amazing things that have been coming out of Ethereum R and D that make it so that Ethereum is competitive in ways that a lot of people haven't necessarily realized yet, but yeah, transactions that, you know, cost a cent or two and settle in about a second are right around the corner now. And I think that's what unlocks, you know, people making things like this. I want to talk about the market a little bit. So Nick Carter had a great talk at token 2049. People can go look at it. It's like a really good summary of the stablecoin market as of right now compares it to euro dollars and how there's going to be increasing demand for stablecoins 
another note he brings up and actually shows with a graphic is that during a, a drawdown and exchange volume, we've actually seen the, a surge in stablecoin demand where people want to more and more. Hence the idea that stablecoins are actually crypto's killer app. And now the question is, who's going to build the front end for all these things? And we've seen a few front ends pop up over time. Curve maybe being like the most Ethereum specific one I can think of. And then like, if you want to go peel back a layer, maybe like die maker, stuff like that. I want to ask about your product and how it fits into like the bread basket of all these different companies that are going to be building applications for facilitating stable coins. What makes you guys different than everyone else who's going to be rushing to build a product like this? I mean, okay. So two things. One is I think that the sort of like open and permissionless nature of Ethereum is really great. And we're not trying to like own stable coins or anything like that. I think that like beating, you know, some of the more opportunistic like uh, alternatives that are out there is going to be an ecosystem wide effort. And we're like happy to be part of that. Everything that we've written so far is open source it's gpl v3 and we've like taken some of the core parts of it and deliberately made them like easy for like other apps to reuse the you know like p256 on-chain verifier there's like a module that makes it easy to produce those signatures from like the secure hardware that's it's like a ledger it's built into your phone um we can talk about those things a little bit later so i was just going to say that first i think it's going to be like a collaborative ecosystem effort versus like a like one company fixes this type of effort. Um, one quick thing I'll say on that point. So we talked a, a, for a second earlier about like USDC and about base. So we're starting by shipping something that uses USDC on base. And I think that uh, we're doing that because we're working backwards from like, how can we make a really great experience? But one of the things where like, what we want to do soon is support, uh, you know, some user choice there and support like, uh, sends, you know, cross-chain in, in sending and receiving and other coins. Um, so it's not going to be like locked to those two things specifically forever. That gets a little bit to like, you know, your question of like, how do we beat like some, or like, how do we stack up against some of the other projects that are doing this? Like, I, I think that there are some that are taking a more sort of, you know, we want to encircle, you know, a space, a, a part of this and sort of like own it approach. Um, in some cases, this is by like projects that are doing their own, you know, alt L1 or their own chain. In some cases, it's projects that are, uh, you know, pushing their own token, like I won't name specific ones, but you can probably think of a few. Right. Um, and I, I think there's, I think that a lot of the stuff is sort of like foundational infrastructure and like, you know, the, the way that I've seen this kind of thing play out in the past, I think something that has more of a like open and participatory approach to it has has a, a, a probability of winning. On the stablecoin note, have you been tempted to go down the stablecoin route? Like I, I spent some time on it this summer and, you know, there's the whole trilemma, um, which, you know, is like whatever it is, uh, scalability, real world assets and decentralization. That's not right, but is it? Well, I mean, the the point is like, um, liquidity is substantially more, you know, uh, decentralized than other stuff. But like Dai, like I actually just looked at it a couple hours ago, and it's something like sixty percent real real world assets now, and 
So it's actually harder to reason about now than it was when it was almost like quote unquote wrapped USDC because it is, you know, it's like it's the, they have half a million dollars with, with, with half a billion with Coinbase custody. They have 1.3 with Block Tower Andromeda. And I don't even remember what that is. I think I looked at it at some point, but I looked at it. I was like, I don't know what that is. And then there's another one with like something called monotilis chrysalis or something and it's just like a crazy thing because like if you anybody that can solve that it's like a huge um thing i mean i don't know do you have any thoughts there like have you gone down that rabbit hole as well i think vitalik and i'm i i'm sorry if i'm going to like mess up the labels here a little bit but he laid out three classes of stablecoin in in one of his recent posts and there was you know, decentralized stablecoins, where an example would be Rai. Uh, centralized stablecoins, where an example would be USDC. And in between, like, this idea of DAO-governed, real-world asset-backed stablecoins, and, and DAI is, like, the main one there. Um, I, I mean, we both still think that DAI is super interesting and, like, Maker is a really cool project. Um, one reason why we're starting with USDC is just because... One, it lets us, I think, do on-ramp, off-ramp really smoothly. Like Coinbase does have this really great property that, um, you know, if you have $100 in a checking account, you can end up with 100 USDC on base, like 100.0, right? Not like, you know, 98.3 or something like that. And that's really nice UX. Um, And the other reason, I guess, is just like recognition and, uh, you know, brand when we started talking to users or talking to like uh, potential users um, at Zuzulu, I would get it even from people who are pretty deep in the space they where they would say like die question mark right and uh, and uh, you know a lot of them had at least heard of it but like USDC just has like a really strong brand um, so I think it's an interesting thing to start with but yeah I mean, medium term, long term, we definitely want user choice there, and and US, and die is still a really cool thing, and we respect it. A, a big thing we're seeing recently is the adoption of interest bearing stablecoins. Uh, of course, this brings up a lot more regulatory issues. How interested are you guys in putting more products onto your app, uh, including like an interest bearing stablecoin, or if there was interest bearing on USDC, which I believe there actually is right now, would you guys be interested in offering that, or would that be like allowable? Steve Jobs has this great line about like a thousand no's for every yes for making a great product. And like, we don't want to like add stuff just because they can be added. Like if things kind of shake out a bit and there's regulatory clarity and there's like, you know, a interest bearing stable coin that has the same level of, uh, you know, sort of trust and like lindiness as like USDC does today. Yeah, absolutely. The, the flip side of the, the interest uh, so so let me let me back up a half step and, and sort of lay out the the like um, the elephant in the room business wise. Um, so there's centralized stablecoins. Decentralized stablecoins are a whole nother topic. Um, there's some fairly fundamental reasons why I think it's pretty hard to make those work really well. Like you know, especially in a time like now, centralized stablecoins have have this fundamental property that they're generating interest. And with a decentralized stablecoin, you're paying often that same amount or more in like paying basically other people to like take the risk for for you of like hedging 
price movements. And so you look at something like Rye and, you know, it's this like amazing and elegant and beautiful construct and its value like slowly goes down relative to the dollar because you're paying other people to be short ETH basically. Um, centralized stable coins in the current environment with like 5% interest are a fantastic business to be in for the issuer. If you are a circle and you've taken $25 billion from people and issued 25 USDCs on chain and those 25 billion, they earn 5% interest for you. And then the rule is at some point later, you can come back and get your dollar back. That is a really great deal for you, right? Um, and so there's been like, there, now there's this big thing of like, okay, how do you share that back to like, I know ideally to your point, like this would go to the holder uh, of the coin, just like it would with like a savings account. That's hard right now for regulatory reasons. Like, if it stays with the issuer, then the question it, it turns into this very competitive thing where it's like, okay, well now everyone wants to be an issuer, and I think it's important to like you know be sort of conservative about what you put out there um, because I think that like a proliferation of like lots of like kind of long tail like stable coins chasing this is you know something that kind of like fragments trust and like can represent a danger to users where it's like hard to tell at that point like what is trustworthy and what isn't. And like, you know, a, an untrustworthy stable coin is a really bad thing. Building on base, building on a company, Coinbase, that is currently in problems with the SEC for a bunch of different reasons. And then also building a stable coin application, which saw what happened with like Signet and all those things earlier this year. How do you guys think about choosing to build on top of base and building a product that's sort of already within the regulatory uh, scope? Why not build on a different L2? Uh, the stablecoin game, I think, makes sense to me, and I think it makes sense to a lot of people. It's worth the risk. Yep. But why not build on a different L2? I, I mean, I, I, I think for one part, like whatever product we create, if, you know, for instance, a multi-rollup vision of Ethereum um, ends up playing out as sort of, you know, for example, a lot of the core Ethereum R&D folks think, um, or, um, you know, it, it, in general, you know, it, the, right now the world we live in is like, you know, a lot of people have very very preferential about like which stable coin they pick, which chain they want to use or hold their money on. So one thing that's like very important for Dymo as well um, that, that we think about like trying to get in as soon as possible is like us having like, you know, multi-chain, multi-asset kind of support. So, you know, when you send your money to your friends, you know, you, they can hold it in USDT on Polygon or whatever else it is, right? So, so that's definitely one piece of it. And then uh, sort of to your other question about like why build on base in particular, at the moment, um, I, I think one big piece of this like puzzle of getting you know adoption um, is like having really smooth and like great on ramp off ramp, um, and USDC of course is like um, Circle and Coinbase have a close relationship, so um, that that is that is hopefully something that will be as smooth as sort of we can get in at least like our initial audience of like Ethereum R and D. Yeah, I mean another thing I would say by the way, so I don't know that. Like I, I, I wouldn't think of base as just like a, a Coinbase, like product. Um, you know, I'm, we're we're pretty close with some of the people working on that. We've talked to Jesse Polak a lot, and I think one thing that's cool about it is they're very serious about like decentralizing it. Um, they're like they want to like diversify out of being custodial <laughs> in a sense for some of the reasons you hinted at, and like one way they're doing this is by like. Uh, basically helping, you know, optimism broadly, like 
uh, you know, ship, they want to accelerate L2. Uh, one thing that some people like listening to this might not be so super aware of, but like all of the like, you know, quote unquote, OP stack chains, which is OP mainnet, base, Zora, PGN, um, you might see some others, <laughs> who knows, uh, all of those are running, are, are near identical on a technology level. Like um, it, it's all being developed out of one repo, right? And so like really what this is, is it's Coinbase like joining that development effort in a way that they have some like branding benefits on one of the specific chains, right? Um, and I think that, you know, you're we're definitely like looking forward to like rollups in general and of course space specifically getting to where it's, you know, a full stage two rollup that is permissionless and where like it's outside of any one person or company's control um, fairly quickly. Like how are you going to market this thing? Like is the idea that you'll start small and you will, you know, like just like people will pay, will pay it out and it'll grow organically through conferences or? Yeah. I th- and I think our approach there is different than, than what some of the the other uh, players in the space are, are doing. Like certainly different from something like WorldCoin that's like, let's send teams into like all of these countries, right? Um, but yeah, do you, do you want to speak to it a bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, one thing that we want to build is a product that we would ourselves really want to use and feel really good about, right? Um, and, and this extends from us, you know, to even broader, like the Ethereum R&D community, right? Like, um, a, a lot of the Ethereum R&D folks would be really excited about having a self-custody product that does not suck, right? Like, uh, you know, we've all used MetaMask and <laughs> sort of a lot of these, like, uh, uh, classes of wallets that have, like, various things about them that um, are insecure, you know, the UX isn't great, you know, the, a lot of things fail, you know, a lot of things going wrong. Um, so, so a lot of those things, I think, um, are, are something we're focusing a lot on getting right on. Um, and you know, hopefully from that, you know, we, we see a lot of the Ethereum R&D community itself be excited about um, Dymo and, well, use it themselves, right? Cool. So, I mean, the place where, that's definitely where we're going to start. Um, so, to your question of, like, how do we market this? How do we do, like, uh, distribution? So, I think one example that we're really inspired by is Signal. Um, so, uh, Signal has, you know, order of magnitude 100 million users now. And they started out with literally cryptographers. And then they went to like, you know, uh, like activists and journalists and people who had a specific need for end-to-end encrypted communication. And they kept going out to like successively like wider and wider circles, each one with social proof to the previous one. And so what we want to do is we want to start by making like the best possible stablecoin wallet for the Ethereum community and then go to, you know, places like Turkey and Argentina, but the Ethereum community in those places, not like, you know, the general, like not buying billboards, right? <laughs> and then expand successively outward from there. The interesting thing is, so I think you you actually have a fair amount of like organic product usage for stable coins. A lot of it is not necessarily people being like, oh, we want to do remittances on stable coins. A lot of it is actually, you know, people who are, like pretty like tech forward, but in countries that don't have great currencies. And I don't think it's actually that many hops of like, you know, uh, like 10x with social proof to the previous group uh, to get from, from you know, like where we are, wh- where we're going to start to to those folks. Um, like, and I, I think that one thing I really like want to say lastly about like, you know, sort of the signal strategy and how we're thinking about that 
I think a really hard thing about trying to do, you know, I've seen a couple of projects, not just WorldCoin do this, where you try to go like directly to like banking the unbanked or remittances, or you're going like, you know, it, it's really hard to like sell like something that is better because it is better tech to people who are pretty distant from tech. And the kinds of incentives you place on yourself when you're like trying to like track that growth number and make it go up are pretty orthogonal to like the building a better product on like a crypto sense, right? Um, or like, you know, engineering, cryptography, all of these things. And so I think that by like having this like focus on quality and starting with people who understand and appreciate that, we can like really like, you know, build trust and then, and then use that to grow. So let's talk about it at a, at a product level, right? It, it is a 4337 smart wallet. What is your strategy for the key management, like using 4337? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like sort of two pieces to this uh, problem, right? Um, yeah, one way sort of I approach this is like, um, you know, I, I, I'd been doing cryptography research for a while. And uh, one thing you start observing is like, in, whenever you do look at like sort of cryptographic problems, it always ends up at these like key management problems, right? Um, and and is usually of the form like, you know, like you need some identity solution. So you represent people or devices or some atomic unit as like, you know, private public keepers, right? Um, and so this was true for, you know, like BGP, this was true for like, you know, uh, as long ago as you can think of, right? Like WhatsApp, Signal, like almost every every iteration has this problem of like, how do we do key management really well? Right, um, and, and, so and, web, and Web two uses your phone number almost <laughs> inexorably, and it's the worst, absolutely least secure thing out there possible. Right, right, exactly. I mean, th- those get broken into every week. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I guess cryptographically secure key management <laughs> is like a particularly difficult problem that like sort of every generation has dealt with. Right, um, and yeah, I mean, even looking back, like you know, all the way back with like PGP, you know the sort of biggest challenge for them for adoption was like you had like these large plain text keys um pgp was like this you know encryption program for emails back in 90s even right um so <laughs> they had these you know long strings that you would copy over devices or you know you had key servers that were run like sort of egalitarian egalitarianly by like uh, random people <laughs> that, that would host like public keys uh things of that sort so there were a lot of problems right um and what's what's interesting is like you know like the sort of prior to like sort of account abstraction and a lot of these smart contract wallets, um, like those simple uh, EOAs, the externally owned accounts on Ethereum, on Bitcoin, they've behaved the same way, right? You know we have seed phrases um, that we're expected to somehow either you know memorize or write down on pieces of paper, copy over devices, you know all, all these kinds of like gnarly problems, right? Um, but sort of the combination of account abstraction along with like this other piece that um, is secure enclaves that we can talk a little bit more about, um, we think there's like sort of this two-part solution. So one is, you know, like we want cryptographic secrets to be, you know, always generated on devices, not written down on papers, you know, um, sort of be inextractable from these devices, right? Um, And then the other piece you need is like, you know, you want to be able to have many devices, right? You want your phone to be able to access it, your uh, laptop as well, things of that sort, right? So, So for that part, you need like key management, uh, or programmability, right, of your account itself. So what are the keys that can currently, you know, make transactions on your behalf or assign messages on your behalf? So, so that part is very squarely done by the account abstraction, um, ERC-4337, and all of these kinds of spec standards. 
What do you think, DC? Yeah, no, this is, exactly. this is a hard question because there's so many layers of the onion you can pull back here when you. So whenever anybody says four three three seven, and I maybe I did a poor job of, of introducing it. I, I I apologize to the audience if so. <laughs> no, it's it's totally good. I mean, one way I would frame it to the audience is I think there's a growing consensus that contract accounts and in particular four three three seven is the new standard Ethereum account. EOAs are still going to be around, but they're kind of settlement infrastructure. Like there's these actors called bundlers that you don't have to really worry about that are going to take, you know, transactions from contract accounts and bundle them and submit them with an EOA, but that's all infrastructural. Like contract accounts, they have this great advantage that Nolan talked about of you can do key rotation, but the way we can boil that down, I think for the user is it's just add a remove device. It's like you have a couple of devices that have access to your account. You lose your phone. You can go to your computer and kick that phone off your account and add a different one. And there's no seed phrases. Vitalik just put a recent blog post talking about a few things within training stuff in the protocol. And one of them is, of course, the ERC 4337. And you guys have built on top of that. Now, how are you guys thinking about like changes to the underlying protocol and how that could change your project built on top of Ethereum? And do you guys have any like thoughts about his uh, his writing on that? Do you guys read the blog post by chance? I guess I can give a super short answer. Like, I, you know, overall, like 4337 getting partially or fully enshrined would be fantastic for us. Um, like, and I think anyone who's building on 4337 because it like removes you know, any remaining asterisk about like, is this the right way to do it? Um, to be honest though, I don't know if it would make like, uh, I mean, it's not something that we're super worried about either way. I think there's like a lot of like critical mass around like the specific approach to account abstraction to where it's not like, I think, I, I think it's very likely that like 4337 accounts are going to be uh, widely used and supported. Have you had any challenges with 4337? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some things that are around, like, I guess, infrastructure or just, like, um, I, I guess, sort of um, developer side of the wallet that, that would be nice to iron out. Um, actually, I think we might put out a blog post at some point about some of the open problems um, that we've seen come up or, or uh, we've just thought about um, fixing. I mean, the most obvious one that comes to mind is the indexing one. Uh, DC, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I can see it. Okay, this is a little deep in the weeds. I, I want to. <laughs> I don't want to uh, give people, you know, excessive detail here. But like the long and short of it, if you've ever written an Ethereum application, you've used logs most likely, like the ETH, you know, get logs call in the RPC, or something built on top of logs, like you know, so an, an, an indexer like the graph or something like that. One challenge is that, I mean, one, logs were a, not the most beautiful part of Ethereum to, be, to, to begin with, to be totally honest. So like, you know, for example, a token transfer emits a, a transfer log, an ETH transfer doesn't emit any logs. Um, like, so tracking what the balance of an account is off of the logs is a bit of a challenge. 4337 adds unique challenges for logs currently. And I think this is a transient problem that's going to go away as the like node providers level up and add new APIs for this. And like I think the situation is going to get better. But right now, 
if you want to, for example, say, what are all of the recent transfers that have happened into or out of this account? And then tell me which 4337 transactions, aka user ops, these came from. That requires like a good bit of manual stitching things together. So like Ethereum logs will tell you which transaction they're part of, which like EOA transaction they're part of, but they won't currently tell you which 4337 transaction they're part of. And there's a few more problems that are along those lines. It's just a little rough right now if you want to make a you know, app that uses contract accounts to cleanly show like the history of what happened and notifications and stuff like that. But we've we've solved that for for our use case. One real advantage I will say for like making something that's very focused and simple, like in our case, you know, global Venmo, it you can have like a really fast API, fast notifications, overcome some of these problems that would be like that much harder if we were doing a general purpose open-ended wallet. So y'all in particular have done work around the private enclave, right? For your your phone. And that's like a real focus. Yeah, the, I, I guess it's in, funny because like the sort of work for uh, that, that went into like getting secure enclaves working for Dymo actually started before Dymo or even the, before DC and I were even thinking of the idea of Dymo. Um, I was sort of just playing around with like secure enclave code and seeing if you know I can make a better password manager <laughs> um, back last year uh, around December actually um, and it was uh, around this time you know DC and I were having separate conversations about like wallets and somehow we eventually converged to this idea of Dymo but um, you know one thing that's very interesting about this whole secure enclave stack is that you know, not a lot of people actually uh, or even like you know in Web2 or whatnot actually care enough about like these sort of like P256 or these very particular like you know kind of ECDSA signature keys, right? Um, to actually have like built infrastructure around them. Uh, so so in many ways you know like often I, I would search up APIs and you know I would be one of the first users of this API. <laughs> or, or for example, we showed up to our auditors with some of our code and a lot of it was like you know dealing with a lot of old Androids, a lot of all, all of those kinds of problems, and we were sort of one of the first people trying to figure this out. <laughs> Yeah, one really nice thing about that. So I think we have a so we've abstracted that into a library um, that is the Expo Enclave library. And so anyone else out there who is making a mobile app that uses Expo, React Native, uh, that wants to generate keys in the phone secure enclave, like in like this dedicated hardware on your phone and, and sign messages from it. Um, you know, this module makes it really easy to do that and abstracts over some of those really gnarly things like Android support. Like I've always assumed that it's like pretty insecure, uh, but yet, I mean, it's good enough for, you know, small, relatively smaller amounts. Um, I guess like talk me through some of the challenges there because it sounds like you've done a lot of work there and that, you know, probably other people haven't. Yeah, well, one thing that is very interesting, by the way, is like secure enclaves on a lot of the sort of newer modern phones are actually like, much more secure than you would expect. Um, so secure enclaves, you know, like like one model of looking at these is like, you know, you're protecting the user from themselves. Um, so you know, there's this other application for secure enclaves that are sort of much less secure. But in this particular application, you know, what you really want is like, you know, you want to have a private key that can never be extracted. You know, that can never sign messages that you do not want it to sign. Right, things like that. Um, and you know, a lot of the app, like wallets that are built today, like you know, they live in like browser extensions, things of that sort, right? Um, and one reason that really sucks is like you know, like it's really difficult to write a browser that does not have bugs, right? 
but it is really simple to write like you know a signature algorithm that's bug free right so the sort of solution in consumer devices like you know apple and a lot of these other uh, uh, companies have noticed is like you know what if we just take the signature algorithms put it on a separate chip you know it's like completely independent cpu independent memory so there can be no like you know memory buffer overflows or you know weird attacks of that sort right so essentially it's like a completely disparate module from the rest of your computer right and the only thing you can do it do is like ask it like hey <coughs> get a you know fingerprint and sign a message for me things of that sort right um, so, so that's one reason you know secure enclaves are actually much better than you would expect um and then sort of, you know, the, the other side is like, you know, like you look at like something like, you know, Ledger <laughs> or you compare it with some of the, you know, other soft custody hardware wallet kinds of solution. And, you know, actually turns out like, it, you know, like companies like Apple or uh, Google actually do a really great job of just building the hardware in the right ways, right? Like the firmware is not upgradable. <laughs> so there is no like, you know, like uh, possibilities of attack vectors uh, in that sense. So so in many ways, I mean, I, I think like even better than like sort of, you know, Trezors and ledgers, we have like these phone secure enclaves that are like very ubiquitous, right? Like they're everywhere. Yep. I think you could put an asterisk on that for old Androids, but for like, you know, quality modern phones, like a recent Pixel or an iPhone, it does have some really great, like, you know, dedicated hardware on it that is ledger like and in many ways even better. Yeah. What's it been like working between like two different ecosystems there where you're like working on hardware with phones and like the backside mm -hmm. of that, but then moving back over to crypto and then you guys even like working ZK stuff. H how transportable have those skills been as a developer? I, I, I think, you know, what we want to see is self-custody stablecoin payments, right? And we'll just do whatever it takes to <laughs> sort of ship that. And, you know, there's a lot of layers of this like problem of this onion, right, that we will have to peel and solve. <laughs> So one way I could summarize, so there's, yeah, okay, this is a little deep in the weeds, sorry, <laughs> apologies. Uh, there's a like SEC P256 K1 elliptic curve, and that's the one that's used by Bitcoin and Ethereum. There's a SEC P256 R1, aka NIST P256, and that's the elliptic curve standard that's used basically everywhere else. So... It's used in the iOS secure enclave. It's used in iCloud uh, keychain. It's used in YubiKeys. It's used in WebAuthn and PassKeys, which are getting real popular right now. And so basically, Ethereum supports the K1 curve natively. Um, if you are a Solidity developer and you've ever used EC Recover, that's what that is. Every EOA is a K1 key pair. It does not support R1 natively, but through the magic of smart contracts, we can we can verify that as well. And so that's what we're doing. Talk us through some of the trade-offs on a technical level that you made here. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely like sort of three-ish approaches that have emerged like over um, like the past few months as like more and more people have gotten excited about adding P56 and you know, getting secure enclave signatures, WebAuth and all of these kinds of things. So the, the one we went with is like a pure smart contract. Um, but the sort of other two that are very interesting is like one is like, you know, as you talked about this ZK snark based approach. So, so that one is like, you know, very similar to how you know, rollups or a, a lot of these other um, ZK snark based applications like often compress computation on Ethereum, right? Like instead of uh, running computation on chain, you just like prove that you ran the computation off chain. Um, th that kind of model uh, is, like, is like one way to prove that. Hey, I verified this signature that was P56. 
um, off-chain, and here's a proof of that. Um, so, so that is like the ZK snark model. Um, then there is the smart contract verifier model, which we went with, is where you essentially just run the entire compute of this verification in like EVM bytecode. Um, so, so for various reasons, you know, there's like a expense or gas cost trade-off that opens up when you look at um, this particular kind of approach. Um, and then the third approach that is like more sort of consensus driven and uh, sort of a longer term approach is like adding pre-compiles. Um, and, and so, you know, the way sort of Ethereum has always gotten around adding like cryptographic primitives in the past is like, you know, oh, you have a complicated hash function that would be very costly. Let's just make a pre-compile that will make it cheaper. Okay. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been a great discussion. We went through like stable coins and earning yield on top of them all the way through like different ERC standards. So quite a lot in this podcast. Where can people find and follow your project? Yeah, we have a website, dymo.xyz and uh, Twitter and Forecaster. What's oh, your guys' yeah. names and handles on on those spots? Yeah, I'm Nolan. Uh, I go by at N-I-B-N-A-L-I-N. And I'm Dan Clemens. And I go by at DC Posh. So that's DC, P as in Peter, P-O-S-C-H. Cool. Well, thank you both for joining us today. We'll see you guys again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if you like this podcast, be sure to share it. Thank you.